What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the host of the What to Know podcast show and the CMO of W2O Group. And I am doing a virtual interview today with my good friend, Ann Hanley. She is in Boston. I'm in San Francisco. Uh, Anne is the Chief Content Officer of Marketing Props. She is also a two-time author. Uh, she is a regular keynote speaker and a just really good person. Uh, welcome, Anne. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Erin, I am really happy to be here, although I do wish we were in the same city because that would be fun. And we have almost been in the same, or we have been in the same city a couple of times recently, including Philadelphia during the summer, where I think we may have actually been in the same building at the same time, randomly or right next to each other. So uh, one of these days we will we will get together in person. But thank you for agreeing to do this on short notice. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm I'm honored and um, I'm very happy to be here. So thank you for having me. And the backstory for that, just so everyone knows, is I've actually had Anne on my target list for a while, so she's not someone that um, was just a last-minute fill-in. I begged her and pleaded her to do this because I ran out of runway. I, I was supposed to have another guest on this week, uh, but this is why we're doing this via the phone versus in person. But I would like to jump in and just talk about your impressive background, and this is the thing that I think is funny sometimes when you get to know someone. We've known each other, what, maybe eight or ten years via the Boston mm-hmm. Connection and social media. But, um, and I may have known about the Globe piece, but you started your career as an associate editor at the Banker and Tradesman, which I knew from my Fidelity Investment days, before moving to the Boston Globe as a correspondent. And then after writing, you know, for a variety of B2B and consumer magazines, you co-founded this little publication called Click Z, which some of the millennials may not sort of be as excited about, but certainly um, I think I had forgotten about that piece. And you were actually the, the um, you led Clixie and co-founded it. Like, let's let's talk a little bit about that. And this isn't even the most impressive thing that I think you've done over the course of your career. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, in 1997, the notion of using this thing called the internet for marketing was a pretty revolutionary thing, which sounds so funny now, but. You know, back then, um, the Internet was so tiny. You know, AOL disks were still coming in the mail, you know, you know if you remember that. And, um, and so it was a very different time. And so, you know, in 1997, um, my business partner at the time, actually, well, he became my business partner. Um, he and I had a conversation. I was in the editorial space. I was a content person, which you know, editorial became content. Um, he was in the sales space, and so we decided to – to come together to form a publication. I had been involved in newspapers, as you pointed out, for a long time. I had done a lot of work with magazines. Um, and so then the idea of using the Internet as a publishing vehicle, you know, we weren't the first to do it, but in the marketing space we were one of the first because um, there just wasn't a lot of information about, out there about how businesses could actually use the Internet to market. And so we saw an opportunity and thought, yeah, let's do this. So that was the genesis of it. Well, that's great, and it became quite a powerhouse, and I think anyone that was in the world of digital or marketing, or particularly social, I remember actually pitching ClickZ back in the day when I was the head of marketing <laughs> after Fidelity for a couple of startups. Um, but you, you let that run its course, and then you've joined this other uh, company that you've been with, this publishing company that does events and great content and webinars. I've actually been a guest, I think, on a couple of them uh, mm-hmm. called Marketing Props. 
And you've actually been with them for quite a while. I get a sense that they give you a little bit of leeway because you have written a couple of books as well, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, let's talk a little bit about what that journey has looked like. And, um, you know, you're the chief content officer. That could probably be a lot of different things. This is a little bit of a leading question because I think I know, but <laughs> share with the listeners what that means on a day-to-day -day basis, day -day basis to be the, the chief content officer of a very well-known B2B marketing content publication. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just to back up for a second and connect it to your last question. So the notion of a chief content officer, um, that was a title that I made up, I gave myself when I was at ClickZee, which is funny now because, you know, fast forward, what, God, 20 years, um, and geez, 20 years, holy wow. Um, I know, huh? <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, so you fast forward 20 years and the idea of a chief content officer really isn't that unusual, but you know, in back then in 1997, people were like, so chief content officer? So are you like the happiness <laughs> person? Um, and uh, and so when I, so I gave myself that title and, and really my partner and I at the time were like, let's, let's make content in the C-suite, like let's make it that important because we're a publisher and um, we wanted to highlight the fact that content was just as important as anything else. And so that was kind of a revolutionary idea back then, again, which is just sort of, you know, at the time it was like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> but, um, you know, fast forward 20 years and I, I assumed that same title at Marketing Profs when I took over um, the content side of things. So when I started, it was very, you know, kind of part-time. Um, and I was sort of coming off the Clixie experience and anybody who was around in those days might remember that it was kind of a crazy period, and especially where you are now in San Francisco. Um, you know, a lot of companies starting, a lot of companies failing big and failing hard. And, you know, we were lucky. We did well, but I really needed a break after that. And so joined Alan Weiss at Marketing Profs um, to really just take over the content side of things, thinking that it was going to be a nice little side project that would allow me to hang out with my kids and maybe sit by the pool in the summer. Um, and that was true for about a year or two. And then it just, you know, it just, it wasn't true anymore, which is good because it's really been a really, um, it's been an awesome journey. And so, well, you, you strike me as a person that you, you strike me as a person that doesn't actually, as much as that theory of sitting next to the pool is good. I think <laughs> you're probably your own worst enemy in that regard, right? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So, you know, what does my job look like now? Um, I mean, anything that we produce or publish on marketing process is essentially under me. So that means that anything that we are, you know, any, any text stuff that we're putting out there, like our newsletters and our, our daily content, um, any of the webinars that we produce or any of the virtual programs that we have, um, but also our live event. We have a live event once a year, um, you know, an in-person event in, in Boston. Actually moving to San Francisco next year, so hopefully Yay. hopefully you can be at that. I know. Um, so, yeah, so all of that is essentially under me. And in the meantime, I've, I've grown from being just sort of a part-timer to I'm now a principal of the company. And so um, that has been wonderful because as much as, you know, I've been working on other projects, it's it sort of benefits marketing profs and, and vice versa. So the two sort of go hand in hand. So Ian, I want to ask you a follow-on question to that last one. And you get to talk to a lot of marketers. You, um, you're the person overseeing all the content for one of the, really the touchstones in the industry of content for marketers, particularly in the B2B world. Um, looking at maybe now and, and out the next three to five years, what advice do you give people in terms of how they should be creating the best possible content? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the, the way that I think about content and, I, and the way that I try to inspire marketers to think about content is to regard your ability to publish as a privilege. You know, we, we all have this ability now to co connect directly with the people we're trying to reach, with our customers and prospects. That's a huge opportunity, but ultimately it's, it's a privilege. And so what I want marketers to do is really embrace that power that they have um, in content, as in life, I guess, <laughs> less is so often more. Um, and so in my mind, you know, the smartest companies aren't just churning out content. The smartest content marketers aren't just, you know, producing more stuff because, because they can. Instead, they're creating content that people like, that they love, that they value. Um, and they're, they're actually creating content that, that their customers um, you know, would miss, for example, so if it went away. So will your customers miss you if you go away kind of stuff? I know that sounds sort of high-minded, but I really believe that the best content marketing, the best marketing period really comes out of that place. You know, let's create marketing that actually matters. So let me ask you one additional follow-on, which I think um, you'll agree with. I also try to give as advice to people that the curation of, and whether that's your own content, other people's, or a mix of the two, might mm. be equally important. And I'll just give you an example. So, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine. You and I are connected on Instagram, and I love your Instagram photos. There are sometimes people that will go on and post, you know, 30 pictures in a day, and it feels a little overwhelming. And some of the pictures are good, and some of the pictures are not so good. And in my mind, one of the values of Instagram is really you might post three or four times a day or five times a day, but being very uh, mindful of curating that just like you would, you know, the content that you do with marketing props or at an event. So sometimes more does not equal better. Sometimes less equals better. So do you agree with that or disagree? And, you know, do you use that as advice to, to some of your folks as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I do think that less is often more. I would rather focus on creating one really great, piece of content. So one really great Instagram photo or one really great ebook or one amazing webinar or one fantastic podcast like this one. You know, then I would making sure that I'm hitting all of those all of those marks, you know. So I think it's much better to focus on creating value and creating marketing that actually, you know, that matters like I said versus you know, overwhelming your audience with a bunch of sort of, you know, mediocre content. Well, speaking of creating great content, uh, in between your day job and time at the pool and time in your tiny house and <laughs> keynoting and being a mom, you've also co-authored a couple of best-selling books. Uh, the first you you co-authored and then wrote one. The first one was with our mutual friend C.C. Chapman called Content Rules, and then you also wrote your own book, um, which is called Everybody Writes, and, and they have longer titles, but those are sort of the main piece. Uh, talk a little bit about what was the difference between co-authoring versus writing it yourself, and did you prefer one over the other? And then I'd love to ask a follow-up question to that after. Mm, so, um, so yeah, so the first one I, I did with, with C.C. Chapman, as you pointed out, I mean, it's, it's different. It's a different experience. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say that it's better or worse to have a co-author or to do it on your own. Um, I mean, either way, you're ultimately accountable to yourself. Um, it did help a little bit knowing that, you know, CC was writing away in his, you know, home office south of Boston, and I was writing away in my home office, home office, you know, north of Boston. And so there was a, you know, a sort of feeling of a, a shared pain, I guess <laughs> you could say. Um, 
But I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoyed both experiences for different reasons. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that one was better necessarily. I think they were just um, equally painful and equally different and equally awesome, all, all wrapped up into one. <laughs> That's a good way to, I, as someone that co-authored a book and it was just a dummies book, I can agree to all of those. I guess um, <laughs> let's dig a little deeper, and that is, you know, the inspiration uh, the content one, the first one, not a huge surprise. The second one, I think now knowing you a little bit more and knowing your history, um, but talk a little bit about, because my guess is that both are related to what you do on a daily basis, but the second one was more about how to write, and then I think the first one was more about how to create great content across a variety of different media, if I'm, I'm categorizing those correctly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so tell us a little bit about the impetus for writing those books. Did you come up with the idea for the first one, or was that CC, and then you know, what led you to the, the follow-on book, which I think became a Wall Street Journal uh, bestseller, which is not an insignificant uh, award for a, a, a piece of work? Yeah, indeed it did. You know, that's that's a funny thing about writing a book and you'll appreciate this. It's um, you know, you think you're a writer, but the reality is that after the book is published or or right before it comes out, you know, you're you're basically in sales, right? <laughs> and so yeah. you think of yourself as as, you know, this sort of writerly type, but the reality is, you know, you're responsible for marketing and selling it as well. Um but anyway, yeah, so the, the genesis for Content Rules was just that. You know, I mean, I wanted to create a book that functioned as a kind of field guide to content marketers who are out there, you know, creating videos and ebooks and webinars and blog posts and so on. Um, and so really we wrote it as, a, as just that, as a field guide to sort of help marketers navigate the space of, you know, where they were newly charged at the time with creating content. So that book came out in, in 2010. Um, it's become the best-selling book on content marketing, which is, you know, kind of awesome. Uh, CC and I are actually working on a second edition to that. A little bit of scoop for you. I don't, we haven't really announced it yet. Um, but, yeah, so he and I will be delivering that in the spring, and it'll be out probably next summer. So that's kind of an exciting, exciting thing. Um, and then, you know, fast forward five years, um, I wrote Everybody Writes because one of the things that I noticed that was really missing from the marketing conversation, I guess, was the focus on writing. And the idea of, of you know, writing a book on writing, like when I first pitched it to my publisher at Wiley, she was like, nobody wants to read about writing. <laughs> and I was like, I think they do, actually. What if I wrote a writing book that was actually readable, that people wanted to read, that was, you know, that was fun. Um, and so that was in the back of my mind as I started putting this book together, you know, I want to make a book about writing that isn't going to make people just groan, you know, because some writing books are kind of pedantic and, and boring, and I didn't want to create that. Uh, I felt like I had to walk the walk. And, um, and so, yeah, so a lot of people we know, a lot of marketers, a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs and, and so on, like we haven't taken writing courses since high school, some of us since college. Um, and the rules have definitely changed, you know, especially in a world where, you know, social media is increasingly a big part of the conversation and, and a big place where we're actually, quote unquote, writing. I'm sort of using air quotes right now, you know, <laughs> you know, so I thought we need a field guide to help us, you know, embrace this, this opportunity again. So, so that's why I wrote it. The new strunk and white, as someone might say, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I am an E.B. White super fan. And, you know, being from Maine as as you are and 
he actually um, was Maine was his a sort of adopted state uh, from New York, and um, and so I feel like a really strong connection to him. And so that actually was in my brain thinking about writing an elements of style for a content marketing age. Well, that's cool. I didn't know that, so there's a little nugget, and uh, we have a question <laughs> that will. Uh, dive in on that, but I've learned something new about you, which is cool. And this is the portion where I do like to shift gears a little bit more into the personal side, even though um, it's hard to divorce the personal from the professional in your case. So there are a few questions that I like to ask people, and I'm going to ask you a few more than I normally do just because I think people will get a kick out of knowing this, but <laughs> what's one thing people don't know about you that you're willing to share on the show today, other than the fact that we just spilled the beans on UNCC doing the second edition of your book, so congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. What do most people not know about me? Um, I hate to fly. Really hate to mm. fly. As in, with a passion, hate to fly. I do it all the time. Um, ex you know, severely dislike it. Like extreme dislike. Well, I'm sorry that that's the case, given the fact that yeah. you're on planes a lot of times, and <laughs> I did not know that, and uh, we appreciate you sharing that. So I don't know what the solution is. Maybe someone has to figure out that uh, 3D printing where you can actually you know, trans transport yourself to uh, an, a new city without actually having to get on a plane. Um, uh, one other no. question I, I do to like travel. to ask. I love travel. I know. Well, no, that's, that's the, the thing. Traveling is, yeah. no, that traveling is fun. You speak a lot, yeah. and so uh, yeah. that is crazy. Um, I'm really interested in hearing the answer for you from you on this one because uh, you get to be with a lot of really smart people. But who, you know, in the vein of who's influencing the influencer, you know, maybe who are one or two folks, past or present, that you could point to and say, ah, this is the person. I think you mentioned one in E.B. White. Um, anybody mm -hmm. else that comes to mind? Yeah, E.B. White for sure um, is is would be one. You know, the second is when I was at the Boston Globe, I had an editor there. His name was Dick Powers. He's since passed away. He passed away a few years ago. Um, he was so seminal in my life because he was the one who really showed me that I was not a very good newspaper reporter, <laughs> sort of funny enough. Um, so why would I be grateful to him? Because it turns out that I actually was a really good features writer, features reporter. Um, which makes sense because you know my approach to content is much more from a storytelling point of view than a straight up journalism reporting point of view like I'm not a news person I'm not a hard news person I'm more of a features writer I like I like you know putting things in context I like telling a story I like the backstory and so he was the one at the Boston Globe who really pointed that that out to me and it was heartbreaking at the time for about 5 minutes and then I realized oh He's actually right. Like he's trying to help me, and I think about that all the time because um, you know Dick was a guy who was constantly trying to give me great assignments. You know, he's trying to get me to cover that fire, or you know, not that's a great assignment, but you know, they were sort of meaty, juicy assignments at a newsroom. And he he was the one who finally had to sit me down one day and say, you know what, like you totally missed the story about that fire because you were too busy focusing on the bones of that house and on the antique books that this woman lost in the fire. <laughs> it's like that was the whole story. And he's like, you didn't have to do that. So all that to say, you know, he was the one who really helped me understand that I was a much better featured writer and than a straight up news reporter and really sort of changed how I thought about my career and the direction of it. Um, well, in a modern that's a hard sense, lesson. Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say that's a hard lesson to learn for a lot of people is taking feedback like that and not, per, you know, taking it personally. But it sounds like you did ultimately uh, realize that it was a gift more so than a, a critique. 
Yeah, yeah. No, he was a great. He ended up being a great friend and, and a great mentor for a lot of years. Um, and we, you know, we kept in touch really long after I left the Boston Globe. So, um, yeah, truly a great, great guy, great editor, and just a sort of a hard-boiled news guy. Like when you think of the cliche of a newsman, you know, it was it was Dick. So, uh, just a, just a really fantastic guy. I was going to say the other uh, person who, you know, more more in sort of from our world who influences me is Seth Godin. And I know that sounds a little bit like a cliche because, you know, saying that Seth Godin is an inspiration to marketers is pretty much, you know, probably the number one cliche in, in the marketing world. Um, but I mean that from a content standpoint because his discipline to producing a blog post every single day is something that I truly admire. Um, I struggle with that, you know, even as somebody who prides myself on, on being a writer and who really values great writing, I have a harder time on the production end of things, you know, actually getting it out the door um, because I'm such a perfectionist. But Seth Godin publishes every single day, and I've heard him talk about this. Um, I've actually talked to him directly about it, too. I mean, the reason he does it is because that's how he thinks, and he feels like the discipline of publishing every single day has value that's beyond anything that, that we think about from a content marketing standpoint. And so really he does it for him. Um, and I just respect the, the heck out of the guy. I think he's done some amazing things. Well, it's cool to hear, and it's interesting just to bring it back to our story today. I have put some rigor into doing this podcast on a regular cadence, something I've never we, we did with the Quick and Dirty podcast that Jen um, Leggio and I did, and then ultimately Kyle Flaherty and I did, where we tried to do it live, and we tried to do it, you know, I think every Thursday. But my producer and I have agreed that we are going to put out a show every Thursday, and we actually have done that, save one day where I did a recap. I think for the last, uh, it will be 36 weeks or 37 weeks, and it's sort of like exercising, right, where it's nice to exercise, and if you can do it regularly, it's good, but the people that are committed to getting out there every single day to do it, I am not one of those people, you do develop a different set of muscles, and I agree with um, Seth that, you know, committing to something and pushing yourself, it gets you to do things differently than you might normally. Obviously, the, the writing is good, the recording and interviewing is good, but it does force you to dig down deep and commit to something that, you know, I think many of us don't normally commit to. So I love that point, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, the last two questions are book and music related, and I do want to be quick just because, one, I'm taking more of your time than I promised that I would do. Um, but I do like to ask, you know, for, for those folks who are interviewing, and, and I also understand that when you're writing books and speaking and, you know, having a full-time job, it's hard to do that. But are there any books that you've read maybe over the last couple years business, fiction, you know, pleasure that you would like to share with the audience maybe that spoke to you in some way, shape, or form? Mm, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, geez. I mean, I I read a lot. Um, I made a commitment earlier this year to avoid social media more, so less screen, more pages, essentially. So <laughs> avoid social media and and actually read more. Um, and I've I've kept to it, and I feel like it's it's been a really good thing. So... So yeah, so I read a lot. Um, one of my favorite books that I read this year was Between You and Me. It's written by a woman by the name of Mary Norris. She's a longtime copy editor for The New Yorker. She is hilarious. Um, and so it's a part grammar book, part memoir, part storytelling, part sort of snarky 
talk about writing and publishing, um, it's fantastic. So between you and me, Mary Norris um, is one of my favorites. A second one, which is more in the marketing world, and I actually don't read a lot of business books, true, true confessions time, <laughs> um, but one of, one of the ones that I read recently, and I actually wrote the forward to it, is uh, Your Ad Ignored Here by our friend Tom Fishburn. Do you know, do you know Tom, Aaron? I know of Tom, yeah. Yeah, he's, he, well, he's out there in, in San Francisco with you. Um, he's the marketoonist, and so what he does is he draws marketing cartoons and so his book, which just came out last month, actually October, um, called Your Ad Ignored Here, it's a compilation of the marketing cartoons that he's drawn over the past 15 years. Any one of those cartoons by themselves are, you know, sort of fun and, and uh, you know, sort of a, a nice commentary. But taken all together the last 15 years, it's almost like a, it's almost like a diary of marketing of our world over the past 15 years because he's commenting on everything from you know the like pre-social media days all the way up to you know AI so it sort of reads as a I don't know almost like a like I said like a diary or a history of of modern marketing over the past 15 years just a fun read quick read and you know cartoon so what's not to love <laughs> and you wrote the foreword so I'll have to check yes, that out yes I did yeah yeah so last question, and then I have a <clears throat> part one and a part two to it. Uh, I like to ask all the guests this. It's a little more fun, um, and I know you like music. You're stranded on a desert island or deserted island. Um, I've, I've heard both, right, in terms of uh, the usage. <laughs> but you can only, you can only have one uh, album that you can take with you. Don't forget about the how do you get the electricity. What would it be and why? Mm, um, wow, that's a tough one. One. Um, Jeez, I'm tempted to name a classic, but you know what? I'm not. I'm actually going to go. Um, I'm going to go with Hamilton, because wow. it's been a relatively. I know it's. Been, <laughs> I'm a little surprised too. It's been a relatively new obsession of mine. Although I actually another fun fact you might not know about me is I'm sort of a closet show tunes person. <laughs> so did not know that. I guess not. Yeah, shocked, but it, I didn't know that. No. <laughs> And so, you know, I love the story of Hamilton, but the music is fantastic, obviously. Um, Lynn manuel Miranda, you know, brilliant guy. And just the story that it tells and the way that he tells it. And, you know, just the whole the whole premise is just, is just really fantastic. So um, I could probably listen to that all day, every day, if I was on a desert slash deserted island. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And uh, I have not seen Hamilton yet. Everyone I know, I think, has. But I have heard amazing things, not only about the the uh, musical itself, but also the soundtrack. So I will, I will yeah. definitely have to check it out now. So this is my one bonus to you, and I do want to uh, throw this out. One of my other guests um, teed this up as an idea, and this is his party trick. But uh, because I think this would be fun with you, what is your go-to karaoke song? I'm assuming you probably mm. do karaoke every once in a while. Mm, yeah, actually, I love karaoke. My go-to karaoke song, Sweet Caroline. In part because my daughter is named Caroline, but also because, and you know this, Aaron, is the whole Fenway connection, um, you know, which is, if your listeners don't know, at the bottom of the seventh, they always play Sweet Caroline as a sort of seventh inning stretch. Um, so, you know, that's just a song that's near and dear to my heart because of my girl, because of Fenway, and because of Austin. That is a great reason for it and a great way to wrap up. So uh, this is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What's No show. I'm speaking with Ann Hanley, who is a dear friend, two-time book author, 
speaker and the chief content officer at Marketing Profs. And thank you so much for carving out the time to do this today. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It's nice when you can do this among friends. So um, have a great rest of your day. Thank you to the listeners. And uh, I hope to see you in person soon. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.